Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm pretty excited for today's guest, Jess Walmick. And I apologize if I miss anything, Jess, but he's got quite the uh, resume from being the fifth generation of his family ranch in Texas to being involved with the TCU Institute of Ranch Management to the founder of multiple companies, including Ranch Network and Explore Ranches. So I'm really looking forward to diving into all that today. Jess, thanks so much for coming on and welcome to the Herd Quitter podcast. Thank you. Yeah. So obviously very short intro there that I, I just kind of highlighted. Uh, I'd be curious if you wanted to introduce yourself, how, when somebody, uh, well, <laughs> I told you how I, uh, like, uh, uh, Ed Roberson's mountain and prairie podcast. I just about asked the same thing that he usually does at the beginning. If somebody was to ask you, what do you do? Uh, <laughs> how would you answer that? But when you have uh, as many things going on as you do, uh, how do you describe yourself or what, what do you, uh, uh, I guess just introduce yourself. Yeah, first and foremost, I'm a dad of uh, two wonderful boys, Jay, who is Jess Womack the fourth, and George Womack, nine and almost uh, and nine and fourteen. Also, uh, a ranch in South Texas, out of Victoria, at my family's ranch, and uh, in South Texas along the Gulf Coast. Been doing that for a long time. After undergrad and college, I went to went through the uh, TCU Ranch Management Program, uh, which is a one year certificate program, and it's a it's a mouthful. But what we like to say is it, it is a business based approach to sustainable natural resource management. After ranch management, went back to the ranch, and then. I got uh, a few years went by and several years and then went and got a uh, master's degree uh, in Boston in international ag trade and, and, and trade policy. In between those two years, I went to work for a summer in Brazil, working for a guy named John Carter and his organization down there was called Alianza de Teja, de Terra, and we certified ranches in Mato Grosso, mainly in the Xingu Basin region for their production, sustainable production practices in an effort to create a branded beef product because the ranchers down there obviously uh, have gotten, have just uh, somewhat, uh, sometimes a, uh, a bad reputation, if you will, when the fight against uh, deforestation and conserving the Amazon. And so this organization was seeking to work with the ranchers. John Carter was a rancher down there and certify these, these sustainable production practices like fencing out two thirds of their ranches, fencing out riparian areas, grazing the rest, rotational grazing, et cetera, and, uh, and trying, to, trying to produce right, uh, as, we, as we put it. During that time in Brazil, long story short, I called a professor of mine at TCU, ranch management, Jeff Guider, who's head of the Institute and he, they came down to visit and we kind of got a game plan together of what we wanted the Institute to do and to be, um, which is essentially take the curriculum 
of the ranch management program and teach that in different and various ways, uh, teach that abroad to different groups who were interested. We've been doing that since, uh, you know, doing that not not full time, but part time, which is why I'm down here in, in Panama at the moment. And then also done a couple uh, startups, as you mentioned, and uh, I help also with my uh, with my mom and some family business and whatnot uh, in, in Texas. So wow. uh, jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly is a lot going on. And I, man, I, I, I have all these questions that I want to ask. There's always, that's always my biggest problem here is I got a million different questions that I want to ask people. And so I'll start off with a personal kind of uh, selfish question here is my wife and I, we've got a bunch of different things going on. We've got kind of a meat marketing enterprise. We've got uh, um, a this podcast. I've got a small real estate business. We've got uh, the farm that we work on as well. And we've got um, each have kind of part-time, very part-time side jobs. And uh, it seems like we're just struggling to get figure out how to do it. So I'll ask a person like yourself who's doing the same thing and, and been doing it maybe a little longer. But we've got two kids, two and a half and four months. So you're Ooh, a little further along in that, uh, that, that trail. So what's your advice, words of wisdom for a guy like myself trying to figure, figure this all out? Well, get your kiddos outside, mm-hmm. number one, as much as possible. You're young. You can deal with lack of sleep for a while. <laughs> And uh, I promise you also that before you know it, they will be older than you want them to be. Mm. It goes too fast. Yeah. And then in between, uh, juggle your time accordingly. Uh, you know, uh, I've always been told try to concentrate on what makes the money, and uh, but also do what you enjoy. And finding that balance is 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 a challenge sometimes. Uh, I enjoy what I do, uh, all of it, but uh, this is probably my my biggest passion, what I do with the Institute and, and education and uh, uh, teaching um, folks um, around uh, in different countries. Uh, so it's super rewarding. Meet a lot of really cool people and nice people and uh, kind of gives you it gives you faith uh, despite all of the uh, negativity in news and media that we have out there today. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah. But this, this is my, this is really, one of my, and, and ranching obviously is, is, is a passion of mine and, uh, and doing that right and producing sustainably as, as much food as possible um, off of the ranch and learning and, 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 um, and, and, and doing it well and, and teaching, teaching my boys how to do that as well. So that's, no, that's, that's really good with your, your businesses specifically, the ones that do you, uh, the, the other ones, do you, uh, outsource a lot of that work? Do you delegate? Are you, are they, have you kind of developed systems that allow it to be minimal efforts or, or how are you managing multiple businesses? Um, well, well, my wife is also a co-founder of, uh, Explore Ranches and she does the vast majority of the heavy lifting and time when it comes to, uh, Explore Ranches. Sure. We have, our other partner, uh, Jay Kleber, who is the founder, really, of Four Ranches, and he also juggles uh, several different things uh, for sure. So we're, you know, we're keep keep moving that down the road and get down to the ranch uh, once a week. So it's three hours door to door. So a lot of windshield time, 
which I use as my time to return phone calls and try to get some other things done along the way, down, down and back. Um, yeah. you, know, well, so you, you live quite a ways away from the actual ranch then? I uh, live in Austin at the moment. Okay. Uh, yeah, I live in Austin at the moment. And so not at the ranch, but who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe, uh, one day these boys get older. We'll, we'll see what happens when that goes. Yeah. Um, you know, Austin's getting a lot bigger and it's changed. Super fun, nice, great food and everything else. But spending some more time at the ranch is uh, looking more and more palatable um, by the day. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the truth. Um, man, I'm going to ask you a question that I'll, I'll maybe challenge you a little bit here, not in that you won't be able to answer the question, but how you answer it in the amount of time that I'm going to give you, because I want to get more into your ranch. That's what I want to spend most of the time asking. But sure. I, I mentioned that I, I listened to the Mountain and Prairie podcast. That's how I had initially heard of you in the first place. And uh, I really like the answer that you gave uh, Ed on, on what you try to do it at uh, Mountain and, or excuse me, at uh, TCU Ranch Management. And you said that you'd like to take a graduate or that you want to have your graduates uh, able essentially to place them anywhere in the world and that they'll be able to figure out the most economical and the most sustainable way to manage those resources, starting with the soil. I thought that was a really cool explanation of the goal of the TCU Ranch Management Program. And so my question for you then is, is can you sum up somehow in a short period of time how you do that <laughs> and i know that's a one-year yes. course but uh, no no it's it's a great question and um you know tcu's kind of niche and and and, and our differentiation if you will when it comes to comparing to other like land-grant colleges we are you know like i said a business-based approach so we, we it's a, it's a bit different john merrill was the um the head of TCU Ranch Management Program for a very long time. A wonderful, he was a wonderful man, and uh, he he really formed this this curriculum, and uh, which we still teach today. So, I mean, to put it as simply as possible, you know, we produce a widget, and uh, it can be uh, a pound of beef, that can be uh, a pound of avocados, that can be a pound of milk, it can be just about anything, mm-hmm. and. Um, analyzing, you know, the first step is analyzing your resources uh, anywhere you go in the world, the rainfall, soil type, forage types, what is there, what is it best suited for, and taking those uh, analysis of those resources and thinking, and, and of course, adjusting where necessary, because all countries uh, in, in some ways, agricultural producers around the world have so many of the same challenges. Uh, relatively different, but still the same, whether that's labor or regulation, whether, you know, uh, getting cost of getting goods to markets, et cetera, all of those challenges we have, we share, but again, in in different ways. And so you take that analysis, you and obviously we, we want uh, the uh, students to teach or to, to, to understand that, the locality, and, and that can vary also in different parts of different countries. Uh, obviously, I mean, you're in Minnesota. I'm in the yeah. uh, coastal plains of Texas. Like we, we maybe have one or two freezes a year, uh, with a, a few exceptions. Like we had a few years ago when we had the big freeze in Texas that I'm sure you've heard about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, 
but I don't, I don't have to deal with the challenges of winter, really. Uh, it never gets that cold. So take the, take the difference in locality and environment, but analyze your resources and, and do economic analysis of what, what, what would be the best for that operation and to make it profitable and sustainable. Uh, we like to say that you're not sustainable unless you're profitable, unless you have never-ending pockets. And, uh, you know, as an owner, you don't care how much you spend, which does apply in, 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 in some uh, operations around the world, but not very many of them. Most people are, are trying to really make the operation, uh, get the operation to make money, be profitable and be sustainable. And so that's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but that's really what we we start out with. And then then we teach, all right, if these are our options and these, how are we going to make these decisions? And then we get into, you know, uh, different things like animal health and uh, labor, capital costs, uh, nutrition, genetics, and various things like that, that all add in. But we also uh, really just repeat, repeat, repeat um, that you cannot just focus on any one of those specifically because, you know, you could own secretariat as an example or the best bull in the world. And if that bull is sick or if that bull is not getting the correct nutrition or the good uh, best management or the, not growing uh, enough grass for him or anything, then he is not going to live up to his genetic potential. So if you only focus on genetics or any one of those issue, uh, things that we have to focus on as agri agricultural managers, then, um, you know, you put it into those, those things into a wheel. And if you don't focus on all of the spokes, well, a wheel with one or two or three of the spokes missing obviously is not going to turn and it's not going to work uh, as well as it should. Yeah. So um, that's the challenge for all of us as uh, mm -hmm. agricultural and natural resource managers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a unique business. I mean, when you talk about we're, we're producing a widget or, you know, like a commodity and different from other products. I mean, when you're thinking of creating a cell phone or creating a product and, most industries you can completely create, they're creating the environment from scratch, building a building and everything in a design that's the most efficient to produce that product. But in agriculture and specifically in grazing based agriculture, there's so many other variables. That yeah, or you're dealing that. with the living and breathing animal yeah. that has to stay alive in order to produce that widget, whatever that yeah. widget is. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah, exactly. that, that is a big difference in a piece of plastic. You're right. Yes, yeah. Yeah. No, and it's just like, and that's where it's like, how do you, yeah, how you teach people there, are there a set of overarching principles then that are applicable within any context in order to analyze those that you you go through is there and and because to be able to teach to bring in a class of however many students from however many different environments and contexts you can't teach each individually, you have to teach them some sort of set of principles I imagine or steps to going about this sort of analysis and um, yes, process. that may be the that may that's ex exactly right, and that may be the one thing that we repeat the most in in our seminars, whether it's with cattle raisers associations in in, in different countries or uh, university students in different countries, um, or even uh, government uh, technicians uh, in different countries. That yes, there are these differences. So just 
what we say and repeat and repeat is just focus on the process. How do we get to, we, you don't know, we can't know as managers what we don't measure. So record keeping is central, is like the central hub of that wheel that I was talking about. And if you don't keep your records, you don't know your costs and your numbers and everything else, then that really hobbles your ability to be able to manage efficiently. So in, in a way, I mean, of course it matters what type of environment you are, what type of animal you're raising, what type of crop you're raising. Of course that matters. But in a way, in some ways, it doesn't matter because if you have your records and you analyze all of these things, then it doesn't really matter what you produce you, if you know those returns and money into challenges and, and, and the, the dollars involved, mm-hmm. um, it, because that's where it gets to be a widget is a widget. Uh, if you have all, if you have your records and you maintain good records, then that is the first and foremost step in being able to manage the natural resources of which you are trying to produce something from. Yeah. Uh, and are there, I, where I don't remember where I hear it and stuff. They talk about data is only as good as its ability to be utilized and stuff too. So there's probably, you know, we can, can, we can record infinite amounts of data and collect on different things. Are there certain records and data points that you feel are most valuable that encourage everyone to do if they were to say going from, you know, no data to first steps, second steps, and, you know, what would be some of the priority items to focus on, recording and then how do they best utilize them um well, one you know you start with it and you know start with it but one one set of those records are going to be your environmental type records rainfall temperature seasons things like that um and that helps to make a decision of when uh, you know your, your breeding season is going to be uh when is the best time to have the calf when is the best time to wean a calf or you know things like that um and then after that uh, aside from that, I should say, are your more economic and financial, I should say, records. Um, so when you get all of those together and learn them and keep keep them over years, then you know how much feed are you feeding, how much hay are you feeding, what the, what is the medicine cost, what is your health plan, and how much does that cost per animal, and add all of those up. And then, you know, you get a, 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 let's, we'll use beef cattle as an example. Um, When you wean your calf and it's a 550 pound steer, 575 pound steer, what, what was the cost of getting that steer to that stage? And then what is the current price? And then you will know your break-even price. Mm -hmm. And then you will know. If, if I'm going to sell this calf with what I'm spending on this calf and what the price is at the moment, how much money am I making or how much money am I losing on this animal? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in order to get to that break even, to know your break even, you absolutely have to have all of those records. Otherwise, you're you're, you're shooting in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. I'm curious, does the the ranch management program, does it offer any sort of like short courses, like ranching for profit as their one week school that a guy like me can do? You know, I can't commit a year anymore to leave the farm probably at this point and go down and go to the school. Are there opportunities for people to get some of this knowledge in a shorter format? Great question. We get that question all of the time. And at the moment, no, 
because, you know, just like in agriculture and just like in pretty much all business and industries, uh, you know, we have limited resources. The teachers yeah. uh, and professors there are, uh, are busy and have plenty on their plate. And so teaching additional courses is, 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 is difficult without new hires and bigger budgets and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's something that we would love to do. And who knows, maybe eventually it's what we do at the, at the Institute, but we, yeah. we just do it uh, around in, in other places, but mm-hmm. um, from TCU specifically that campus, no, we, we don't originate short courses or online courses yet and, or teach. They used to have a night class, but that just took up a lot of time and a lot of resources and um, uh, for people that were, you know, have a job, but that was for people in the area and they could come to the night class. Um, you know, so I, I wouldn't, I, I definitely wouldn't rule that out uh, in the future. Um, it's something that we talk about and uh, it's and, and a question we get often. And and I know there's a need for it. There's, there is a need for it um, because as, as we like to say, agriculture uh, is being asked uh, by, well, the world uh, to produce enough food for more and more people using less water and fewer inputs. And we also have uh, getting less and less land uh, because of uh, you know, uh, urban encroachment and things like that. And all around the world is another common challenge in agriculture is that uh, the average age agricultural producers is is getting a little old and um, we need to find ways to keep young people in the business and find ways to uh, and, and the way to do that is to make is to be profitable and make it worth uh, young people worth their while and and that that is a challenge that everyone in the world faces every country that we've ever been to. Because, uh, you know, the young people are tend, tend to tended over the years to move into the city and get jobs and and move away from these operations because of a lot, some, a lot of times there's no there's no space for them in the business. And then once that happens, it's, it's hard to get them back into agriculture once they've established themselves in, in a career that, that that's that's not in agriculture. Yeah. yeah. So that's something we face. Mm hmm. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shifting gears a little bit here. Now I want to, I want to dive into your, your family's ranch. And I, I'm always curious to hear a little bit about the history before we dive into what it is today, I guess. Uh, when did the family ranch start? Is, I guess, is it a family ranch? Yeah. Your fifth generation, we, we covered that. Uh, what, what was the uh, kind of the start of it and the enterprise mix and how did it kind of change throughout the generations? Uh, yes. Great question. Um, my great great grandfather started the ranch after he went through the area on a cattle drive and started building that ranch in the 1870s. In 1989 and 1990, uh, as is a very common story with many family operations, we, well, my dad really, and uh, that generation divided the family ranch, which is known as the McFadden Ranch, um, amongst uh, different cousins and whatnot. So it's, it's kind of, it's really cool. I'm surrounded by mostly, uh, my cousins and uncle and, and my brother and I run are part of the ranch. And, um, and so, uh, that happened in 89 and 90 and, uh, how it has changed. 
Um, <laughs> well, one besides what you know, the carbon contract that we're going to talk about. Uh, one 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 change also is that besides cattle, now for the past seven or eight years, I've been running uh, sheep and goats, Dorper sheep for for me, hair sheep, so not no wool and goats to both produce meat, but also to help me uh, control uh, invasive species and brush that we have. So I can, again, lower my cost mm-hmm. by not having to spray herbicides and, and kill those invasive species and also make a little bit of money by selling the end product uh, yeah. and the kids. So was, uh, was the primary reasoning for adding sheep and goats for weed management not for necessarily like the the enterprise's profit margin compared to cattle, or was it a combination? I guess it's a combination, and you know, I, I will, I'll tell you, I, you know, I, uh, according to my records, cattle are, are, are I, I run cattle, will always run cattle. Uh, they eat, they all all those species. They eat different things. They're good to run uh, to uh, at the same time. Um, they can help uh, clean up the pasture because our biggest, meaning our, our biggest uh, enemy in the sheep and the goats right now, uh, because we're Gulf Coast and hot and humid most of the year, our biggest challenge and enemy are internal parasites. Um, and so one benefit of running those species together is that uh, they will consume the grass and forbs and whatnot and for like cattle, they will consume some and they can be a terminal host for a few different species of, of internal parasites that affect the sheep and the goats and then vice versa. So that also lowers my cost of having to worm the animals and, uh, and, and, and keep them uh, uh, healthy. Um, additionally, uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to let the secret out, but the sheep <laughs> business right now is uh, and goat is is a pretty dang good business you know cattle are more capital intensive the sheep are less much less capital intensive it's easier to get into that business uh lower purchase price etc and honestly i i I estimate that i spend uh around 110 115 bucks uh per you as an example uh per year all in all of my costs and in september uh i sold my lambs for uh, at 65 pounds average wean weight for about almost two dollars and sixty cents a pound. So I turn turn in 110 bucks into about 180 dollars, and getting that kind of return off of cattle is is really difficult, <laughs> if, if not impossible. And you have a lot more money per year in each of those cows, um, mm-hmm. but, and they all have their their purpose and. It's also, you know, diversifies the income stream. It makes you less susceptible to market movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps with cash flow because you're selling at different times of the year. And so, you know, just all of the above is the reason uh, I got into that. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. You said you don't want to let the secret out. I feel like you almost got to bash someone over the head with like a, you know, <laughs> to get them to even consider raising sheep or goats. Like that's going to be oh, no, a pretty... no, I get a lot of grief. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> from people in South Texas who are, you know, you know, we're, we're cattle people. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, and that, that type of deal, the tradition, you know, all that. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, that, and I love the tradition and I love mm-hmm. all of it. But uh, at the same time, um, 
it's a it was it's a good business move, but they are a pain. I mean, we yeah. have to where we are. Like, you know, if you're raising sheep and goats out in West Texas and you're getting, you know, less than twenty inches, maybe fifteen inches of rain a year, it's it's dry, it's not humid. They, the, the you know, those producers they don't have to they don't have to worm mm -hmm. if, if if ever. Um, yeah. We have to, we have to bring those animals in, depending on the year, depending on the rainfall and and the weather. Uh, sometimes as many as five times a year to worm, and wow. sometimes uh, as few as three times. And wow. we switch products so we don't breed the resistance. Yeah, uh, hmm. and we're very careful with the dosage, and again, so we don't breed resistance uh, in in those parasites. And uh, so it, you know, it is it, it's it's more hands on and and mm -hmm. and. And challenging um, than working, you know, working cows once or yeah. twice a year. Yeah, uh, but where no. you are, cattle are challenging too because you have to deal with winter. You know, yeah. so it, it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no perfect setup anywhere or anything. But I, I laughed. I was at the uh, at the Rancher for Profit School, and there was in the evenings you have the opportunity to kind of work one on one with the instructors and do sort of gross margin analysis on different enterprises. And there was a couple there that they asked the one of the instructors to come over and work and they said okay i i i do not want sheep i don't want sheep on my ranch but i want you to walk through the numbers with me we're going to be as conservative as possible here and and so they did it and he's like yeah, i don't i don't remember what the numbers were and they said you know maybe you can expect a 1.6 you know, lambs per you. And he's like, let's do 1.3. And he said, you can expect this 80 pound weaning weight or whatever it is. And he said, well, we'll do 60. And it just walked through all of these and knocked off all these conservative numbers, pretty, you know, pretty even more conservative. And at the end, those sheep still kicked his cows gross margin, but <laughs> and there was no competition. He's like, man, I was really hoping this isn't what would happen, but it did. So yeah, I guess that's a, that's I mean I like to tell people um you know sheep and goats sometimes I feel like they they actively search out a reason to die yes um, and that can be very frustrating um but yes uh but if you select your females for 20 over the years then yeah getting 150 160 percent weaned lamb crop or kid crop is 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 very possible mm -hmm. uh, and uh so uh that 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 is very helpful with the economics but yeah yeah when they when you have when you have these events and you lose some of them it's just it they're it can be it can be frustrating uh yeah, yeah. no good 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 note there i know and my dad in early 2000s decided to jump all into sheep when he moved out of the grazing dairy enterprise and about three years later moved pretty quickly out of it when he realized how many of those challenges there were with it and had some struggles and things and going back he says you know I, you know if i could do it again i would make some changes and there's still some probably some real good opportunity in it but at the time it wasn't the right fit and i've been hesitant to do it ever since but the more i look at the numbers the more i am uh more i am interested in it so i'll have to I'll work it up again I worked part-time at a dairy in upstate New York when I was going through college and uh, loved it. And, uh, but it also at the same time made me very grateful that I raised beef cattle. Yes. Yep. <laughs> 100%. I say that all the time. Yeah. I, I was it's lucky to sort out of the dairy by the time I was just old enough to start having to do chores. So <laughs> that was good. But uh, no, cool. Um, so 
you kind of talk, your great, great grandfather, 1880s or whatever started the ranch. And then in the 1990s is kind of where you split it off. And in that whole time period, was it primarily cattle, cow, calf focus? Um, and, and then when, uh, I guess, as far as management goes, um, land management and, and such, was there somewhere in that history or is it relatively recent when you started to focus a little bit more on actual land management, grazing management and, and kind of different practices around that? You know, um, I think just like in most places, you know, there are, there are old ways of doing things and those have changed and improved uh, doing things uh, over time with, with research and technology and better, better knowledge and more knowledge. So, you know, I mean, going from, uh, as an example, from continuous grazing pastures to rotational grazing, you know, that, that was a big change and that, that, that has evolved. And we know now that that's, that's, that is a better way to do it uh, mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, uh, things like that. And, you know, and then, you know, as time has come up, uh, uh, gone by as well, you know, I mean, Labor costs have obviously increased. Diesel and then you know fertilizer input, as as you well know, uh, herbicide. All of those input costs have increased, and you know so you have to adapt and change. You know, um, it's it's nice to think that we could all do things the way that things have been done forever. You know, for since our great grandfather or grandfather or whatever, but. It, it's it's just a, it's different economics. We and, and you you have to adapt to those times. I mean, and even everything from uh, animal husbandry and um, and finding you know higher price markets like uh, we have been in for years. The uh, NHTC program where that's certified where they're non hormone treated cattle, but you know you have to run those numbers as well if you're not going to implant your calves. And get an extra, you know, 40, 50, 55, 60 pounds uh, on those calves by weaning. And they're going to be lighter because they haven't been implanted uh, a couple of times. Well, then that that market, that non-hormone treated market uh, needs to pay and offset that uh, lower production. Yeah. Uh, so things like that. And, and uh, I would say most years it does, but there are years because of the general global economy or various things so that, that that it doesn't. Uh, so it, it's not. I wouldn't say it was a gamble, but everything has its risks, and you just like we like to say, you know, adapt is necessary, plan for the worst, hope uh, and uh, hope for the best. Um, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And uh, so you know, those are all those have all been changes as as far as production practices over over the mm-hmm. years. And, yeah. And, yeah. Sure. So I'm, I'm curious that was there with specifically, I guess, kind of land management and, and regenerative agriculture is kind of the hot button topic out there now. Was there a point where you and your family and uh, really realized that this is something we either have to do, like we got to get on this, there's a ton of opportunity or like we're, uh, was there some point and what were some of the first changes, I guess, that you made and more of like an on, on ranch practical level, what were some of those changes that you started? Um, you know, my, my dad saw that uh, when he, when I was in school and my brother was in school and we we're, you know, first getting, got our part of the ranch and running it as, as we wanted it as well. And, and all my cousins as well, they've, they've, they've adapted uh, accordingly. Um, you know, I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the cost of labor cost obviously mm-hmm. has, has, has gone way up. 
Yeah. Uh, the availability of labor, the quality of labor, um, all of those things have have changed, and that it almost forces uh, that changing of, of management practices. You know, when you used to be able to pay a cowboy, you know, ten or fifteen bucks a day. Um, you know, the, the, those days have long since passed. Yeah. Yeah. They will never come back. And so you, you just, again, unless you have endless uh, bottomless pockets, you're going to have to make those adjustments. Uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to you're going to find yourself without a viable operation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, and then also, you know, the, the rise of uh, our invasive species down where we are and in most of Texas are, you know, like mesquite. Uh, we satch brushy, brushy plants that if we didn't we graze uh, correctly, uh, we utilize burning in the native uh, grasslands. Um, and we also utilize uh, herbicides, but try to limit that because of the cost. And, and then you have mechanical to try to control that. If you don't control it, any of it, then you wouldn't even be able to ride a horse through those pastures. And there wouldn't be any grass underneath those trees. And so you have to, that's, that's, a, that's an example of something that, you know, you want your pasture to be 100% solid, we satch and mesquite, then do nothing. Do, do things the way it's always been done, or you can adjust as necessary and, 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 and change and adapt your management practices to better. Because, you know, mechanical brush removal is the most expensive. Herbicide follows that. Uh, burning has a cost because you have to defer the pasture uh, to grow the fuel in order to get an effective burn. Sure. Uh, and so all of those things have costs and you have to analyze that. Like, you know, what is, what is the best way to handle this? And mm-hmm. another reason for uh, the area where uh, we run running the sheep and the goats is, you know, try to minimize costs as well as make some additional money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of it is a lot of those changes have been born uh, out of necessity because of the the the, the cost of, of 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 doing all of these things um, in order to efficiently produce, uh, sustainably produce as much uh, as much protein or as much you know as you can uh, off of off of the land. Yeah, I'm curious from you you your your perspective of one who knows and understands data and collects data and, and, and uh, analyzes the cost of different things. Grazing management is something that I think there's probably, gosh, there's so many different perspectives on different ways to manage it, you know, and there's so many different terms alone, but you know, how much you take, how often you graze, how long your rest period, your recovery period, infrastructure, is it permanent? Is it temporary? Um, I'm curious in your context, uh, and, and area, is there, what, would you say you found what is an optimum utilization of labor infrastructure to maximize your return while minimizing your investment, I guess, or what have you found and what, what's your grazing management, I guess, look like on your family's ranch today? Um, you know, I I mean, I, I hate to give you nebulous answers, but that, (laughs) It, it as you well know that that largely depends on the species of forage and again mm-hmm. analyzing resources to figure out your management strategies um, and this, so you know figuring out what the species of forages are that you're that you're trying to manage uh, there are several fields on the ranch that are predominantly introduced Bermuda grass species and Bermuda grass you can utilize you know 70 somewhere between 70 and 80 percent. 
it can stand, it can stand a little abuse. Sure. And with a little bit of fertilizer, a little bit of rest, it'll come back. Most of our pastures are native grasses. And that rule of thumb that we teach and I like to live by is take half, leave half, mm-hmm. uh, if at all possible. I mean, in the drought in Texas in the 50s, as an example, you know, um, they, they, they started using these things called pear burners. And that was for prickly pear. And a guy would walk through the pasture and mm-hmm. like with a flamethrower and burn the the cactus needles off of the cactus so that in the drought of the fifties, the cattle would have something to eat. Wow. <laughs> um, now we know that the cattle, even with the, uh, the, the needles burn off, the cattle won't eat the, that cactus until your native grass is gone. Yeah. And when you abuse and overgraze consistently native grass in place of your better grasses, you will get your lesser quality grasses, and then eventually you will get your invasive species because they're less palatable and the the, the animals will not eat them unless they absolutely have to. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when people have problems with noxious weeds, most of the time, as an example, more than likely they're overgrazing because animals won't eat those noxious weeds unless there's nothing else to eat. And so, you know, th- those are those are the types of changes. Like if, if you have to start burning your prickly pear in order for the cattle to eat, then you should have taken your cattle to the auction barn long ago. Long ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds but, like a, oh man. Yeah. Now we're fortunate that cattle can move a little easier. I know. And, and uh, Gosh, and some of the droughts of the past, I've read like historical books on droughts and like the freezes and the blizzards of up north and stuff. They were kind of just like nothing you can do. You just got to watch them die. But we have a world where you can send them on a truck yeah. and you might not get what you want for them. <laughs> you can one, one other thing we like to say is you're, a lot of times, most times, your first loss is your cheapest loss. Yeah. Yeah. You, you hang on too long, the cattle go down in weight, you don't get the breed back, your weaning weights go down, your grasses, you, you graze off your better grasses, and then finally you decide to sell. You sh- probably should have sold six, eight, ten months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It hurts, yeah. especially if you put the effort into bettering your genetics and improving your cattle and all. It, it hurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No question about it. Uh, but in the long run, it's going to be the better option. And the short run. <laughs> yeah. And short run. yeah. And watching, like I said, watching them die is not fun. No. And, and just watching them depreciate and you, you're grazing your fort. There's so many times, like you're saying, not only are you removing your, your stockpile for or you're grazing out what you have left of your forage and reducing your, your inventory of feed at the same time, this is happening to everybody else. People are starting to sell more cows. There's less demand for them. So you're also depreciating your cows at the same time while they lose, you know, condition and everything. And yeah, there's so many negatives. Don't want to be the last one to sell. You should be the first, but um, who is it? Wally Olson heard lots of people say you can never, you can always have, uh, you can never have too much grass or money, but you can definitely have too many cattle. So um, (laughs) that's true enough. Yeah. (laughs) No, cool. So I'm, Curious then, like when you started to make changes on your management, and I don't know when that was specifically in your in your grazing management, what were some of the responses that you saw to a, a more adaptive management or intentional management of your grazing as opposed to just, and I don't know, maybe it's been 
generations since you did more of like the continuous graze model, but what were the responses that you saw uh, when you guys started to make some of those changes? You know, and, and, and of course, obviously, again, um, as an industry, we are largely dependent on the weather, um, mm-hmm. unless you're irrigating and that's not an issue. Um, but so depending on the year, but, uh, you know, in good years over the years, all you have to do as a producer is, you know, keep watch your pastures and your pastures will tell you, uh, the response. You'll be able to see it. Our best grasses that we have, as far as native grasses go, um, are, you know, uh, big blue stem. Indian grass, switchgrass, uh, even little blue stem, and uh, several others. Eastern gamma is another one. And when you start to see an increase of population in those better grasses, then your pastures are telling you that you have been doing the right thing, the better, you know, and managing managing that well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have seen that. Um, yeah. And that's that's been one of my goals. Uh, you know, if I let a pasture rest, through the spring, which is our primary growing season, we have a second, you know, we grow from, we grow 65-ish percent of our forage from really late March until mid to late June. Mm-hmm. And then our summers get hot, our soil temperatures heat up, and it's essentially the same as winter time down there because the, the the warm season grasses will go dormant. Our nighttime temperatures won't get below eighty degrees, and and we don't we don't grow that forage. Wow. So from late March, maybe first of April until mid June, we'll grow about sixty five percent, and then about mid September until early to mid November, yeah, yeah, mid November we will grow another the additional you know thirty thirty five percent of our forage because yeah. it starts to cool off. We get uh, September is our second wettest month of the year uh, down there. So we'll get our secondary growing season. Mm-hmm. But if I leave a pasture resting during the spring and look out there, and when I see, you know, a six to seven foot tall, big blue stem plant, it makes me happy. Yeah, I can imagine. It makes me smile. I point it out to my boys, and of course, they roll their eyes because I pointed it out a hundred times, and <laughs> um, they're tired. You know, sometimes they get tired of hearing about it, but uh, they laugh. And yeah. but that 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 is letting you know what your management practices are doing. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I'm. That's how I would answer that question. Yeah, and you're seeing more and more of that then over the years, Absolutely. and yeah, that's. That's cool. I do you have data to back up like the uh I don't know production uh forage production and and carrying capacity of the ranch as you've adapted management? Yes, yes. Um and again, you know, depending on this summer was awful for an example. This yeah, summer. yeah. We did not have to liquidate. Luckily, uh we have uh at the ranch predominantly um really black clay soil. The advantage of that type of soil, it holds moisture for a longer time. Uh, so we won't burn up as quickly as a lot of folks with, uh, you know, maybe sandier and rockier. And, you know, it's it's just a lot of topsoil. It's black. It holds moisture. And, you know, again, if you're if you're grazing correctly, 
then top growth is relative to bottom growth. And so if your top growth is higher and, and you're, you're taking care of those plants, then they're not going to be as susceptible to drought. Yeah. And then when it rains, they'll come back uh, a lot more uh, quickly mm-hmm. than if you had overgrazed. And so, you know, we, we, we can produce a lot of grass and I don't have records way back when, but yes, we have seen an increase in forage production. Again, we have to fight the mesquite. We also manage for wildlife because that's an important part uh, of our operation as well. And so, you know, there's part of me that would like to kill every single mesquite on the ranch and brush species, but we manage for wildlife as well because that's important in the biodiversity aspect, the hunting and, and all of that. So it's, it's a balance. And I, I, I haven't changed my stocking rate in, you know, very much significantly in a long time, but that's really only because we do get droughts. I like to be conservative. If I can make it through a drought without having to liquidate, I figure I'm better off than running, you know, 10 or 20 more head of cows. Uh, I just like to be super conservative. Um, But yes. No. And that's like you said, the drought year can make anything, you know, throw off an upward trend in production pretty quickly with a, with a bad year. But what's been cool to see in these last few years now, I'm just coming on three years now of doing this podcast. And for a lot of people, this has been three of the driest years that a lot of them have seen in in quite a while. And uh, it's been a lot of fun to hear some stories of not drought immunity, but certainly some drought resilience and a whole lot better off than a lot of folks who hadn't been managing prior to the drought uh, coming into a drought and trying to make a change is maybe it's kind of too late, maybe to really set your you know, to set yourself apart in those drought years. But it's uh, it's been cool to hear some stories of folks that have been managing well, you know, and differently over the last five, 10 years that come into this drought and have just uh, kind of been blown away by I mean, you know, maybe even in this drought year, they did have to destock, but they're still running more than they were in the good years before they started changing management or something like that. And that's a pretty powerful story in, in my mind. So Jess is talking a lot about how to make your operation more resilient, specifically in this context through management and building soils. But another way that you can make your farm more resilient is by controlling your market and setting your own price for your product. And you can do that by direct marketing meat to consumers. And if that's a model that you want to get into, I really think you should check out Barn to Door. Uh, Barn to Door is an all-in-one solution for farmers selling direct. We actually, on our farm, have been using this now for over three years. It's an online and in-person uh a sales management program and platform. It, it does our inventory management, connects with our email service, uh, and and so much more. So I really encourage you to check that out. You can go to www.barntodoor.com forward slash herd quitter. And that's where you can learn a little bit more about the success we've had at our farm. You can also, if you do sign up, get access to a free academy session, which is a $99 value. Again, the website is www.barntodoor.com forward slash herd quitter. And I will have that link in the show notes below. Oh, I, I was very happy this fall. Um, you know, we had well over a hundred days of triple digit weather this summer mm, with wow. rain, and pastures looked like winter time. And uh, we got some rain in late September and in October, uh, and the pastures bounced back even better than I had hoped for. Yeah, 
and that uh, that made that made us proud uh, as an mm-hmm. operation because that again the pastors will tell you if you're doing good management and mm-hmm. uh, and they did and and that was that helped out a lot yeah yeah well that's a good point too not even just like you know maybe a little more growth during the drought but uh, I've seen it, it wasn't on a pasture, but it was probably similar to a significantly overgrazed. I probably could have gone to a different neighbors and, and seen this sim- similar thing, but uh, there was one summer that it was extremely dry. I think it was 2020 or 2021, extremely dry for us up here in Minnesota. And my dad and I were moving cattle and there wasn't anything on the radar. And all of a sudden we got this shot of a quarter inch of rain. And this was, it had been weeks since we'd gotten any rainfall. Ground was dry, everything, you know, it was it was just bone dry and we got downpoured and we were already out in the rain. We completely got soaked. So I was like, well, no better time to go and see what's actually happening on the ground than in the middle of the rain. And we looked in our pasture that had abundance of residue and cover on the ground still and no water was moving. And we went to the neighbor's bean field that was dry as a bone again. And everyone would assume that a quarter inch of rain with as dry as it was, everything would infiltrate, but there were just streams of water running down the soil, down the hill uh, towards the waterway. And it's like bone dry ground, middle of a drought, only a quarter inch, not a huge dumping of rain. And it still wasn't infiltrating. And your, your management sets your soils up to take advantage of what does come later. It's not rainfall that matters. It's rain infiltration that actually makes a difference. 100%. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Your soil temperatures will be lower if, if the ground is covered well. and Your soils, where it, is, where it starts. And you, yeah. treat, you treat your soil right, then you're going to be in better shape. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I've not talked to anybody, I don't think yet, that's done the carbon contracts. And I know that's a, a pretty hot topic these days, at least in our area, for sure. A lot of the crop farmers are talking about it, trying to capitalize on this carbon movement. And there's not a lot of people out there doing it in pasture, but you guys are, I believe. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about you know, your thoughts early on in this process of when you first heard about the idea of being compensated in this carbon contract? program and then how you went about participating? Yes. Um, you know, both through the ranch and the Institute, um, you know, been talking about, uh, you know, climate, talking about climate change and agriculture has been around for, for a while now. You know, I think it's easy for, uh, folks to get sidetracked and, you know, wonder, well, you know, is it man-made? And if it is man, you know, or caused by our activities or how much of it is caused by our activities is a cyclical. And, and to me that that's really immaterial to the conversation just because it, it is here. Uh, we're seeing it everywhere, you know, wh- whether it's cyclical or not, we, we have to deal with it nevertheless. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, down here and in, in, in Panama, as an example, um, they're letting in, 50% less, uh, fewer ships into the mm-hmm. Panama Canal to cross than they otherwise would be because they're in a drought. Wow. And it takes a lot of water to mm-hmm. get one ship through the locks up and then down. Um, it takes a lot of water. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and so it, it, it's, it's, they're going through it here too in Brazil. Um, you know, Ranchers and farmers will tell you, you know, years ago, the rainy season would start on this day, pretty much by the day, last, you know, six, seven months. And then we have our dry season. 
and they're not getting the same amount of rain. The, the rainy season and dry season are not starting and ending predictably nearly as much any longer. Um, and so all of these, you know, things are challenges. Um, you know, we don't have a, a rainy season per se, like the tropics do in a dry season in the United States, but we do have winter and we do have summer. And so it's, it's in a way, it's very, very, very similar. These, you know, weather swings and weather patterns, we've been talking about this for a while. So agriculture has to deal with this uh, because, again, we're, you know, the world is at 8 billion people and we're projected to peak out in 2050 at somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, between 11 and 12 billion people on this planet. Hmm. Um, we're going to have to produce enough food. Because uh, hungry people tend to get angry and frustrated, <laughs> and sometimes, uh, a lot of times, even violent. Look at Africa, and and, and well, in a lot of places on the on, in the planet. And so, agriculture has to deal with this. At the same time, uh, I'm, I'm on a, a board of the Texas Agricultural Land Trust, and we do conservation easements on working agricultural lands. And I've been involved with them for a number of years great organization. And, you know, we, we've been talking about the, uh, well, everybody, but, uh, you know, the ecosystem services. And, you know, I taught last week, uh, it was the scariest class I ever taught in my life. I taught three ag elective classes uh, at my older son's middle school, eighth grade. And I was sweating bullets, by the way. Um, <laughs> but, uh <laughs> It was cool. And so I had some slides and some pictures of the ranch. And I I asked each class, I said, here's a picture of open rangeland. I said, my, my question to you all is, does this, does open rangeland, well-managed open land, agricultural or rangeland, well-managed, does this provide any benefits to you besides food production? And you know what? It was awesome because pretty much all of them nodded their heads and said yes. And then I asked them, like, what? And, um, you know, they, they said, well, uh, uh, pollution and climate change. Wow. And I got really good answers from eighth graders, right, and, and, and seventh graders. And um, it was really encouraging. And so then, I, I, you know, I talked to him a little bit about ecosystem services. And I said, well, what this land, well-managed land can provide and, and places like that is, yes, you're right. It's carbon sequestration and flood control and buffer recharge and biodiversity and things like that. And so to get back to the carbon aspect of it is that ever since I was in Brazil, and that was the summer of 08, um, you know how I went on a run with a with a fairly well known Amazonian like a tropical forest scientist a researcher a guy named Dan Nepstad really cool guy and I was running with him one morning in in Goiania in a city in in Mato Grosso and uh, and I mean sorry Goya State and uh, we were talking about that and it, you know at that time he was working on a program that uh, it was uh, trying to get through in these like the the climate change summit that just finished, <laughs> um, we'll get into that. But at the time, his his one of the things he was working on was a program called uh, was R, known as REDD Red, and that's reducing emissions through degra from degradation and deforestation. 
And the point is coming up with a value that these ecosystem that these that these ecosystems provide to the general public mm-hmm. is extraordinarily complicated and difficult. How yeah. do you put a value on biodiversity? Mm-hmm. Of course, find a, a, a like an insect in the Amazon and come up with a cancer drug and save a lot of people's lives. But you know, it is. All, I mean, I'd say it's close to impossible to put an economic value on that. How do you figure yeah. that, that value? So how do we incentivize producers and landowners and or countries to put that value? Um, you know, I mean, again, in the Amazon, not to belabor the point, but, you know, if an acre of standing rainforest in the Amazon is worth $500 and then that same acre the next year, with the with the rainforest mowed down and planted into a monoculture of soybeans is worth $5,000. So the economics are very clear. So how do we change that economic? How do we change those economics? And what I like to tell people is or my my opinion is the two easiest things at this point where we are in this in this fight uh, against climate change or adapting to climate change is the two easiest things in my opinion are water and carbon they're fungible commodities they can be they have limits we know how much we're emitting for instance we we can estimate how much water we have in reservoirs and groundwater these are things that we can indeed put a value on to try to adjust our production model to where there, those values are reflected for correct management, good management. Um, and then the tricky part is how do you do that without drastically increasing food prices? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, it is presented to us as a general public as is simplified, just like so many other issues. But it's it's so, so incredibly complicated. So I, I'm very interested in carbon and water because I think those are going to be the best ways we have for the foreseeable future to put a value on good agricultural management and open and and and, by, and I'm and I'm talking about forestry too is is also included not just food but food and fiber uh, and fuel um, and so you know and I think that's that's the way the world is going um, in my opinion I think in ten years we could very easily have a uh, Carbon contract traded on the Chicago Merck, for example, just like live cattle and, and feeder mm-hmm. cattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the market will mature. Uh, it's a very immature market at the moment. There's going to be some win- big winners and there's going to be some big losers. It's it's, it's not going to look the way it does now. But, you know, I started talking with Grassroots Carbon, great company, good people. And um, they came and talked to us actually at the Texas Agricultural Land Trust meeting uh, a year or so ago. I've been thinking about it for a while. So I started working with them and looked at their contract. And and quite frankly, the upside of the carbon price is not limited. So if the carbon price goes up and I actually, we don't go into a multi-year drought, I actually am sequestering carbon, then my upside potential will not be limited as far as what it, what, what I will get paid. Also, I, and again, this is all personal and this is depending on where you are. But for me, our ranch, there is pretty much a zero chance that uh, I will in the next 
10 to 15 years, which is what I'm responsible for in this carbon contract that I signed, I, I, I'm not going to turn the ranch into a subdivision or a giant, giant parking lot Yeah, uh, yeah. for Walmart. Now, you know, if I live 30 miles away from San Antonio and I were 70, 80 years old and looking at my kids and their financial planning ability and everything else, that's a, it's a whole different ballgame because it's not right for everybody and nothing, nothing is right for everybody. You, it, it's, it's uh it's too too much of a complicated picture for that but for us down there we 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 liked it and um there are some limitations uh you know i had to exclude because we'll have a every there's a possibility of like you know a pipeline coming through which will cause ground disturbance etc so that had there had a few adjustments in the contract and and i don't have any in the pipeline going through because that's imminent domain and a whole different debate um but that I have to allow for that possibility because we're between South Texas and Houston and Louisiana where all the refineries are. Uh, so th- there could be another one. Uh, but other than that, I honestly did not see a huge downside. Uh, didn't see really any downside. Um, and so if the, you know, and like I said, this will pro- progress, it will look differently, but in the meantime, in the next 10, 15 years and I can get paid a little bit for doing the right thing and controlling the brush and managing a uh, good grazing management and everything else. Then, then I, I think it's, it, it could be a significant source of income that will help pay for all of those activities of, of doing of, of, of good management, which, which it, like I've been saying it, it, all of those systems cost money. So uh, that's, that's how I got into it. Uh, it's a very long answer to your question. And uh, it's why I signed on to it. And we shall see how it works. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that was a really good explanation for why I think myself and a lot of people maybe don't fully understand it, the need for it, or, you know, just in general, don't understand what this carbon market is. And I think, you know, I, I hadn't heard it worded that eloquently, I guess, or that well, just the idea that right now, I mean, people talk all the time about the food costs of the current food production system that are externalized, the consumer are not paying. That's talked about often. There's a lot of these costs. The one that I think gets pointed out a lot is the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, there's a huge uh, degradation that has occurred largely due to agriculture. And the idea that a consumer would have to pay that directly or something, I mean, it's just not really uh, feasible at the time and consumers want cheap product. And that's what the government is kind of subsidized in a way as cheap food. And that's the direction they pushed and um, can't blame farmers specifically. They follow what the industry tells them. And you can't blame a consumer who's just trying to feed their family as reasonably as possible either. But this is kind of a neat idea, the idea of not directly applying this cost to a food consumer that you can manage your land well, and that can result in in improved ecosystems on your land. And hopefully this scales to where, you know, it's nationwide, ideally that people are improving their management, but that the cost is not directly borne by the food consumer, but by whoever is purchasing these contracts, I guess. And I guess a question for you to maybe you can help me understand is what's the incentive for the purchase of those contracts from somebody else? Why is that, why is there even a demand for a carbon contract uh, or for a carbon, uh, uh, yeah, purchase, I guess? That's a great question. First of, all, first of all, I don't know if you've seen it yet. There's a documentary fairly recent. Uh, Woody Harrelson um, narrates, it's called- Common Ground. What's that? Common Ground. 
No, it's kiss the earth or kiss the kiss, Oh, yeah. Kiss the ground is their kiss first the one. And their second, the sequel to kiss the ground is common ground, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, one of the most immediate effects that we can have to mitigate the uh, to mitigate uh, climate change is is improve our soil health because mm -hmm. the vast amounts of carbon that we can put back into our soil. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's the incentive? Um, one incentive. Uh, and I, I told I told the middle school classes this, too. There's two I, I would mention. One is that there's more and more consumers that are interested in what's going on and how their food is produced. That can seem onerous to us producers in some ways. People looking over our shoulder, you know, especially the animal welfare aspects and, you know, things that we need to do differently and, and we are doing differently. And But the fact is that there are more consumers, especially in developed uh, world economies, that have that are interested in how their food is produced and want to make choices that they feel good about and that that and buy products that are you know labeled and, and trying to do and produced uh sustainably in the right way now there's a lot of consumer confusion out there we need to improve our labeling and make more make it more clear and easy to understand because a lot of people unlike you know you and I don't have the the time or even maybe the interest in this industry and, and really understand what we do. And that comes with education as well and, and everything else. But the fact is there are an in, there is an increased amount of, of consumers that, that want to, um, you know, vote with their pocketbook for lack yeah. of a better. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to say that, you know, a, a minority of consumers that are willing to pay more for products that are that that they do feel comfortable with the production methods and everything can quite literally force the change of the production supply chain. And so the, and, and, and in a lot of ways for us, instead of feeling as agriculture producers, instead of feeling threatened by it, I would say that those changes and that demand is is providing opportunity. Um, and finding, you know, higher priced markets and, and things like that uh, and increasing income. So that's a good thing. Um, additionally, another reason that incentivizes interest in a market for this carbon is that uh, these corporations uh, of all different industries are getting watched uh, more and more. And so they want to come out there and say, look, we're offsetting, you know, our carbon emissions. You know, Walmart's going to build a new super center in southern Minnesota and cover five acres of ground with with concrete. Yeah. They want to go to their investors and stockholders and say, we offset those in increased emissions. GM or Exxon, you name the industry. I mean, Google with, you know, the huge amounts of energy that they're, you know, uh, data centers use up. Um, and they want to offset all of that. Um, so, and, you know, the, the, um, so uh, ESG, uh, investing that people have become. So there's a lot of these funds, institutional type funds and other funds, you know, uh, that their, their shareholders, you know, the California teachers pension fund, biggest teachers fund in the United States, you know, their shareholders are telling the managers of that money to invest in ESG companies. If they don't qualify, then they're not, they're, they're not that, you know, these funds aren't going to buy their stocks. And if 
that few that much that many fewer people are not buying their stocks in the price of stock is going to go down so this is using the, the the world of finance and economics as a uh, as pressure to try to force um, or encourage I, I should say the these these corporations and, and, and companies to to offset their emissions and try to do their part in mitigating the effects of carbon uh, of climate change mm-hmm. and so there's that interest and some of it don't get me wrong like it, this isn't a you know Cinderella world that we're living in there there's a lot of greenwashing out there yeah a lot yeah. of meaningless greenwashing mm-hmm. uh, you know call it what it is but again this is a very new market uh, the greenwashing eventually gets exposed and the bad actors eventually get exposed and the good actors and the people that are doing it altruistically or doing it for real and really really doing it right that that will all come out in the wash eventually um and then you know the, the additional challenge with carbon is you have to eventually we'll have to there, there, there there's got to be a cap at some point because if there's an endless supply you know where how do you price that commodity sure. yeah these don't yeah. work so there's a, there's a long way to go, and there's a lot of things we need to do. But it's a fascinating uh, world and a, a new market, and I, I do believe that if if we can create a functioning market, it's a win win. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have to adjust. We as a society may have to adjust our consuming habits, which I don't think is necessarily bad. No. Um, we have to adjust our production methods as producers, which I don't know is necessarily bad. Not at all. No, but it's just uh, it, it, it's just it's just very complicated. It's going to take time. Yeah. Um, and also, what I tell young people, and what we tell young people at the institute we teach is, you know, with challenges comes opportunities, and agriculture is actually a really exciting industry to be in right now. Yeah. Yeah, um, has the potential to be such a big player in in this in the change we need to see. You know, it's a huge amount of potential. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's it is such a complicated thing, and and you know I I don't know yet what I feel, how I feel. <laughs> I can't say I, I've looked into it as much as some people and you, but I think it has a t- ton of potential. Some of the things that I I think have frustrated me is largely in like the cropping world when I see they can get compensated for going from say tillage to no tillage. And it's like, well, that's not sequestering additional carbon. That's just reducing the carbon you're emitting. And so you're getting paid where you maybe should have alternatively been paying yourself. Or so it's kind of an odd thing where I really think the excitement of this is, well, two things. I really like that it, it hopefully, maybe, I don't know where it'll go is it's a free market solution as opposed to a government imposed change, you know, a government mandated change in farmland management. And I like this idea of consumers purchasing for products from companies they see as being more sustainable because of something like this. I like that free market aspect to it. And then, and then also I like what it can do for grazing because grazing and perennial based pastures and grazing management is like the one, it seems to me like one of the best ways to sequester carbon. You can do it with no tillage. You can maximize green cover and sequestration throughout the year and things. So the potential what, uh, of what it can do for the grazing lands of America, especially considering how many tens of millions of acres there are of it is pretty exciting. But, yep. Yeah, absolutely. It can, it can make it, 
it can help to make a, a, an almost immediate impact yeah. in climate change mitigation. Yeah. But for you on your ranch, then I'm curious, what, what did the process when you decided, you know, I like this, this company, you said they're good to work with. Uh, what was the process then when you decided to go down the path of, of getting into carbon sequestration and or of the carbon contracts? What did, what did that look like initially with them? And how has that worked out? Well, I mean, I, I, we just signed the contract a couple, couple months ago. Okay. Um, Very fresh. They'll talk to me in a few years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But you know, um, yeah, like I was saying, if 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 this can provide a small, you know, but alternative income stream, then I, I will be mm-hmm. able to, you know, uh, fight the brush and invasive species more. Which so theoretically, I should be able to grow better grasses um, and sequester more carbon, um, you know, and um, uh, and and with with good management, and then you know, it's 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 a win win. If I have more and better grasses on my pastures and I can, you know, have a, a little bit more of a resource income stream to help improve those pastures, then I'm going to sequester more carbon. But at the same time, then I theoretically should have heavier weaning weights and uh, healthier animals. So yeah. and make more money on that end. I, like I said, I didn't didn't really see a downside in that except tie and land up in a contract with some some people are uncomfortable with like yeah. and same thing within at the texas ag land trust it you know with with conservation easements and i should and I, you know when i said water and, and carbon but i will also say that i think conservation easements are also a, another way and a, a very efficient way of recognizing the value of open spaces but uh if if that can happen and i can sequester more carbon and continue managing correctly um, then it, I think, yeah, I, I just saw it as a win-win. So we yeah. negotiated a contract and there wasn't a whole lot to negotiate. Of course I had to, you know, cover my basis. So I got a lawyer to look over it, but heal. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, talk to the boys a little bit about it because, you know, it, it will affect them a, a, a little bit eventually. Um, you know, I don't, hopefully God willing plan on being gone in the next 10 to 15 years, but um, you know, it's just something I like to talk. I like to get them thinking about stuff, stuff like that and the overall environment. And these kids, they, they are thinking a lot more about the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so they were, they were, they were big fans of it. And uh, so, uh, and I, so I just decided to give it a try and mm-hmm. uh, hopefully it, it works out. And uh, as we go down the road and, and, and these things develop for the better and get, like you said, a private market, uh, solution, and I wouldn't say it's a complete solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we do need governments doing mean, whatever they do, but hopefully efficiently. Um, yeah, that may be an oxymoron, but maybe <laughs> yeah. there's always hope. Um, yeah, and uh, but you know, to, to, to deal with this issue, it's going to be and it, it needs to be right now, all hands on deck. Yeah, and this is, this is a partial possible. Uh, help and, and solution if it's practiced widely mm-hmm. and I decided to be kind of ground level uh, a part of it. Yeah. Now that's, that's cool. I'm curious if you're willing to share some of the details, I guess, of the terms of these contracts. Uh, what, what does it look like for the producer? What are the expectations of 
you of you and what are your expectations of them? How, what does the compensation look like? I guess as much as you're willing to share and as much as you know, because sure. like you said, you're, you're relatively new to this yourself. I am. And I, and, and quite frankly, I liked uh, grassroots carbon. Uh, I didn't do a whole lot of research on other companies. They're in San Antonio. They're close by. So for a number of reasons, I did look around. I have read a lot about it, but I went with them and they expect that on somewhat average years, and you know, obviously we don't have average years very often, but um, over the course of the contract at the Texas Gulf Coast um, area, coastal prairie grassland should be able to sequester three to five tons of carbon per acre. Um, over the course of the contract? Every year. Every year. Okay. Every year. And again, we will figure out and learn over time that is, is there, I asked that question, is there a limit? Do I get to a maximum carbon storage in my soil? And um, a lot of scientists and folks don't seem to think that there is, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Now that'll be an interesting thing to watch. You know, if it mm-hmm. if it tops out, if it, it does indeed have a limit, I, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I'm planning on fighting brush, like I said, a bit more. It, it, you know, they're going to pay annually. They take so they they act as a essentially uh, aggregator, if you will, or broker, and get folks like me signed up. And then they turn around and go to, not to beat them up, but just say uh, a Walmart or whatever and say, this is what we got. How much do you want to buy? And if if a corporation like that says we want to buy X amount, then I say for whatever price, and that depends on the market. um, And so, and then they'll say, they'll turn around, take 20% of that. And then I get 80% of that. Okay. Sure. And I'm responsible for the storage of that carbon five years, uh, four years, gosh, uh, almost forgot, um, <laughs> after the expiration of the contract. There's a third-party certification to try to make it not uh, greenwashing sure, um, and make it legitimate, and that's required. So there's another company. Uh, there's several of them in the United States that will be the third party certification and doing soil tests and all of that. And so, you know, again, uh, we shall see. And so it, it could be, it could be very, uh, it could be a good little income stream. I mean, it's yeah. you know, I'm not going to go out and buy an airplane or anything else, but, um, yeah. you know, I think it's, it, it's going to provide a good incentive for me to, for and for landowners or and producers to mm-hmm. uh, to help because because of the you know the increase in these input costs and labor costs mm-hmm. agriculture producers are struggling so mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and we I mean I'm just trying to look for any income stream I can to help uh, you know to keep this ranch viable for the next generation um, and so I'm, I was very willing to try this yeah. No, that's, that's awesome. And so three, roughly three tons of carbon per acre, did they give you, I mean, in the market's probably constantly fluctuating, what kind of value that might be worth? Right now, I believe the market is in the neighborhood of $20. Okay. So you're talking an additional $60 per acre, potential 80% of which goes to you, uh, potential, that's significant stream of revenue for some folks. A question that I've got 
for you on this whole process then too is, and I don't know, I can't, you know, this might be incorrect, but my understanding specifically in my area, largely what I've heard is related to row crops, that a lot of this is based off of uh, almost like certain practice can, will store an average of X amount of carbon. You know, you, you go to no-till, it's this, you go to cover crops, it's this, you apply manure or whatever, it's this. And it's not necessarily based on real data, real collection, real soil sampling on that specific farm. Um, is that the case with this, that it's an assumption based on certain practices over time, or are they doing real soil tests to determine the true carbon collected and sequestered on, and stored within your soils? They, well, they, they got done a, a couple, three months ago after the contract was signed, they came in and did soil tests. Okay. Um, so we're going to do annual soil tests for, from now on. And, mm-hmm. you know, we could be, we could go into a drought again next year. Yeah. You know, and then I'll have to make choices. Like, again, this is all going to be uh, part of the management system because, you know, if I'm, if I, we don't, if we get into a drought, I don't want to sell a cattle immediately and, you know, eat some more of the more of the grass than I necessarily would normally want to, and that would probably—I mean, scientifically speaking—that would be reflected into the in the soil tests, and I would be, you know, that would re- drastically reduce, if not negate, any of that carbon storage. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's a that's going to be that could be a decision. Like, if I get rid of these cattle, I'm going to lose this income, but at least I'll you know keep that carbon in my soil and. Uh, you know, through the roots uh, systems and, you know, it, it's going to be, you know, doing some math problems and, and, and budget and, and budgeting. Um, and so, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited and interested mm-hmm. to see how all this works. And, yeah. and then I think over the next five to 10 years, when more and more people do this, this data is going to become a lot, you know, there's going to be a lot more data. They're going to be able to, base their projections and everything else out of, off of more and more re, uh, real-time data and different ecosystems. And so it'll be, it'll get to be, I think, quite a bit more accurate uh, yeah. in their assumptions and, and, and projections. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it'll, it'll be fun to see. Yeah, for sure. Um, no, I, I, it is such a immature, such an early stage of this whole this whole market. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes and in a short period of time and over the long period, uh, over the long haul too. But um, another kind of question, I'm just curious on the soil testing thing, do they do a certain, will they go, how deep will they test and to see how deep you're capturing carbon? That's a great question. And I don't even know if I asked that. Hmm. I think they go at least four to six feet down. Okay, good. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, do you get access to that data then too? Your soil? Yes, yes, I will have access to that data. Cool. It's, I'll be able to build graphs and I'll be able to build trends as well, and and, yeah. and absolutely have access to that awesome. data. Uh, that's that's pretty cool as well. Um, let's see. So then, I guess just the you, you said you looked at a couple other companies, but you went with Grassroots Carbon. Has been has the process been with them pretty good? Do you, I've, I've wondered. Sure. You know, you're working with a lot of companies. They're out mostly for themselves and, and stuff. And the process working with grassroots carbon has been, you feel uh, an enjoyable process for the most part. And super smooth, super easy. Good. Cool. Um, not, no pressure salesman type stuff. It was, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. it was good. It was a great okay. experience. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm, 
I'm excited to see where it goes. I, I know even over in, in a couple of years, I hope to have the opportunity to buy some land and I'm looking at all the different opportunities just to help cash flow it. You know, there's obviously the operations, there's NRCS, different programs for different management and stuff. And, and for a beginning farmer trying to get into agriculture, I look at this as potentially one more income stream to help stack on top of it to make to make a, a land purchase and, and getting into agriculture work. So um, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, is there anything else that we haven't talked about here that you think is worth sharing before we start to wrap up? Gosh, Jared. Um, what did I can think of offhand? Um, I mean, if you have any other questions, let me know. But yeah, uh, covered a lot of country. So uh, <laughs> good. I enjoyed it. Enjoyed good. it. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. And and I before I let you go, I'm gonna ask just a couple, like one, well, one question I like to ask everybody here, and that's uh, uh, simple. What would be two, three, four recommendations for resources that can be anything from a class to a conference to a book to a podcast that uh, you think is a valuable asset for people to check out that you would uh, you would recommend they do? Oh, yes, to answer your question, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love, uh, you know, if you're into conservation and history and, and things like that, uh, you know, uh, like you and I were talking about earlier, I absolutely love uh, Mountain and Prairie. Ed does a great job. Um, there's a lot. Podcasts are great. Um, I think they're an invaluable resource. Uh, a lot of these uh, land grant colleges have great online information and even courses, you know, as far as like Cattle prices, you know, it's thing. If you if you really look for, it, you know, like Cattle Facts is a great organization if, to help uh, with risk management and market projections. If you want the information, it's pri- most likely it's out there, mm-hmm. uh, depending on what you're looking for for your operation. And every operation obviously is different, but when you know that's that's the these phones and and these these kids on the phones all the time bugs me sometimes and i get to be uh, like old and grumpy um but at the same time uh it has you know all of this information data and easy access to it is enormously helpful to to producers uh absolutely and 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 like i said we need it gone are the days we just kind of look up at the sky and, and wait for rain and Hope the market's okay. You you can do a lot in between those things to limit your risks, uh, in, increase your production, lower your cost, all of these things, and 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 stay ahead of the technology. New medicines, new, you know, um, this cattle and pasture management software systems, uh, you know, and uh, you know, I, am I guilty of of keeping rotation dates on a on a paper pad? Yes, I am guilty of that. Um, <laughs> but you can plug that into software, and it makes your life a lot easier. Also, yeah. well, um, the fact that you're keeping track of rotation maybe is ahead of a lot of people anyway, <laughs> be it on paper or in a, <laughs> in a program of some sort. So that's a that's a good start. Um, uh, no, those are those are awesome, and I appreciate that. Uh, Last question, I guess I just have for you is if somebody wants to reach out or learn more about what you're doing, uh, where would you direct them? Or is there anything you want to plug? Uh, do you have a website or anything? Yeah, I guess just anything that you you direct people to. A little um, I don't have a website. They can find me through the Texas Ag Land Trust or the TCU Ranch Management Institute, uh, the Ranch Management Program. I know those professors there If when, when they have time and always open and, and always looking to help producers in any state. 
um, in any country, we like to say, I like to say uh, to, on a positive note that, you know, a rising tide uh, lifts all boats. Yeah. Um, and that, to me, applies to agriculture, whether it's state by state or even country by country. Plenty of mouths to feed out there. Plenty of places for our products to go. I don't really see a lot of competition uh, or see negative. I, I see too much competition is a negative uh, in some ways uh, because in agriculture, we're really and truly, we really are all in this together. It is a global industry at this point and mm-hmm. United States absolutely needs exports for our products. We benefit from exports and, but TCU Ranch Management, great resource. Your state uh, NRCS and your county offices are great resources. Your land grant colleges, professors there. You know, like I said, you know, it is impossible for an individual, any almost impossible for any individual to do all of this by themselves. Uh, build a team is my advice, and it's a, the advice that we give uh, to folks when we talk about this in class. Like, you know, your 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 animal health representative. And, you know, finding things out about that, you know, it's just there, there, are, there are resources out there and there's people that are happy to talk to you. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. just a matter of putting in the effort. You don't have to do it. You don't, we can't know it all ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we absolutely, it's great to find uh, people that uh, specialize in different areas and then utilize their expertise. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, well, thank you so much, Jess. This has been fantastic. I, I've really enjoyed hearing what you guys are doing and, and just, yeah, everything you shared. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for reaching out. It's been, it's been a pleasure and, and uh, we'll talk soon. You bet. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farocattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com. <laughs>